Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Uh, hey there, Steve. Joe Wong is the host of the brilliant podcast, The Trap Set. Initially focused on conversations with drummers, but recently moving into speaking with other musicians, Joe is almost 300 episodes in and the archive is well worth your time. And Joe is also a multi-instrumentalist and hugely experienced musician, having played and written music from a young age. He recently released his first solo record, Night Creatures, and so we got in touch to see if he'd be up for a conversation from the other side of the table, and thankfully he was. Ben, how did you feel heading into this chat with Joe? Um, I felt really excited because I think both you and I have spent a lot of time listening to the trap set um, and I've really enjoyed the kind of arc of the journey that that podcast has gone on um, uh, and having an opportunity to kind of check in with him along these various kind of staging posts on the way, you know, episode 100, episode 200 and that, and just kind of seeing the, how he's grown in confidence, you know, and he, he's talked about, um, you know, how the podcast very much was about kind of processing some of the coming from a low point in his life, processing some of his own sort of neuroses and trying to shift into a different kind of creative gear. Um, and and you really kind of see that across the journey of how the podcast has developed and then having an opportunity to kind of um, to speak with with him and see how it has kind of the, the impact he's had on him, on his own personal creativity, um, was was fabulous, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And without wanting to reveal too many details, Joe's story so far has seen him pack in a lifetime of experiences. He's very driven, isn't he? He's really, really driven. Yeah, and and again, we got um, we got some lovely insight into the kind of the strong DIY roots that he comes from, and how that has informed and underpin pretty much all the decisions that he has taken and continues to take. And that, again, coming back to that is so inspiring, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I loved the descriptions of uh, the various circumstances in which he's lived and made music. And he, he paints some really enticing images, doesn't he? It's, it's, uh, it's really fantastic. Some great, some really, really great storytelling and, um, you just wanted to be there, didn't you? You wanted to yeah. really be there for those moments and to have and to have some of those experiences yourselves. You know, people have got a treat coming. Listen to that uh, particular story, one of the particular origin stories, eh? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's, it's really, really vivid. Although I, I sort of use the word enticing there, and I'm and thinking about hammer throwing. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that I, <laughs> I want to be enticed into a hammer throwing room. <laughs> Hang, hang on a minute. I think you've done some axe throwing, haven't you? I have. <laughs> I have done some axe throwing. I've done axe throwing once, but it was a, a, an organised event. <laughs> Health and, it was risk assessed. I don't think they risk assessed their yeah. hammer throwing. Yeah, but at least his was in his youth. Yours was, uh, you know, last year or something. But, uh, you know, yeah, anyway. <laughs> the end of the show, we've got um, a bit of a first for us, haven't we? Because Joe's given us three versions of the same song so we get the the uh, initial kind of thumbnail sketch of joe sat in his room with his bass guitar just kind of sketching out and freeforming a bit of an idea just him and his bass guitar and then it goes into the the kind of more fleshed out home demo version and segues into the full version from the album with strings and horns and um 
it's really interesting, isn't it, to uh, to see that um, that progression? And I couldn't help but feel that it, the the sort of evolution of the song kind of nicely mirrors his own creative journey so far, doesn't it? It does, and it was the point at which he started to say, "Oh well, I could give you, I could give you this version, I could give you that version, and then like I've got the phone version, and I, you know, and the fact that he, you know, spoke about this really interesting way of going about writing. Well, for me, it was interesting, like you know, starting off just, you know, getting the basic melodies down with a, a you know, root root note bass guitar. Found it was like a really interesting way of approaching it especially when you contrast it against the elaborate kind of orchestrations that the finished songs have evolved into. Um, but the, and when the, when the phone demo came across after that conversation, it was, ah, oh, what a moment. It was, it was such a great thing to hear. Wasn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. Brilliant. And I love that. Um, yeah. It really kind of satisfied the muso in me that that idea of I'm writing on a bass and I'm not going to, cause he didn't want to use a chordal instrument to kind of get to to work up this melody and because he had the the notes on the bass and the vocal melody it allowed him to play around with the chords that were going to sit with that and in turn would you know chose uh chord progressions that perhaps he wouldn't have done you know um if he sat down with a guitar to, with, guitar with that melody um so yeah I, I love all of that it it was great and it, and the, it takes a brave a brave person to put that out there to say okay yeah you can have you can have a listen to this this is its origins but also it feeds into that um you know lots of people have talked about the moment um the specific moment at which something didn't exist and then a piece of music comes into being and this is the very very nascent moment of this song isn't it this is that moment that that arrives that first kind of reaching for a, a, a structure of notes and then uh you know a, a half a half a melody to go with it that's that's it that's the moment this song came into being it's brilliant yeah what a treat thank you so much joe for that we are hugely grateful and i'm sure people are going to really enjoy listening to it uh thanks to to nick joe's pa for helping uh set the uh interview up um we'll put some links um at the in the show notes to joe's podcast to the trap set and also to his fantastic album night creatures which is also well worth your time so let's go over now to our interview with joe wong on episode 20 of songs from a padded envelope this is joe wong and the song you'll hear at the end of the show is called Night Creatures. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Joe. Your podcast is a real treasure trove of interviews, and we're really looking forward to speaking with you about it later in this episode. But to kick things off, can you share a bit about your early music making and, and getting involved in playing in bands? Sure. Um, I started playing piano when I was six and then subsequently moved to violin and clarinet in elementary school. And when I was 11, I discovered drums and that really felt like my vehicle into the world of music. And it felt connected to the music that I was listening to on the radio or on cassette at the time. Uh, the prior instruments felt more academic and I didn't feel the connection between that and the type of music that I was listening to. But I was always an avid music listener from a, as long as I can remember. Um, and, um, shortly after I got a drum set at age 12, I started playing with a neighbor who lived up the block and had a guitar and 
instantly I knew that's what I wanted to spend my life doing. Uh, I can still remember the first time I played with another person and um, it was what I remember most is this visceral feeling of joy uh, that I've been kind of, that's kind of guided me to where I am now in my life. It's, it's, it's informed most of my life decisions for better or worse, usually for better. Um, but from there, I started playing in bands when I was 14 that were playing gigs around my hometown, Milwaukee. And when I was 17, I started a bizarre, angular math rock band and started touring on breaks from school. And at 18, I moved into a house that was already established as kind of a punk rock house where lots of bands would come and play in the basement. And so through this, I met musicians from all over the world, really, some of whom I admired, some of whom went on to become, um, you know, big stars later on. But just being part of a music community and basing my life around music um, has been, uh, you know, something that's been very important to me since I was a child. There's a there's an awful lot to unpick in what you've just said there, Joe. I mean, one of the, the things that hits home and many people have kind of referenced it is that first moment where you connect with another musician and feel yourself, you know, playing, performing together. It's such a such a visceral kind of strong thing. And you say that that's kind of stayed with you throughout your life. Well, the feeling comes and goes, to be honest, but the realization that I had when I experienced that deep joy um, has informed pretty much every subsequent decision. That first band, uh, those first sort of early experiences of bands, how quickly did you find yourself recording your music? Pretty quickly. Uh, I think I started recording in a studio by the time I was about 15. Um, and I remember how scary it was. Yeah. You know, this was before home recording was really all that popular. Um, if you wanted to make a professional recording, you would go into a studio. I mean, I, I subsequently got a cassette four track and, and got into music that was consciously lo-fi like Daniel Johnston or Elliot Smith. Uh -huh. But, um, you know, it, there was still more of a studio system in place at the time. And, and then fortunately, one of my bandmates' father owned a recording studio. So we had free recording time. I remember that the cost was $50 an hour at that point, which is seemed astronomically expensive. And mm -hmm. we all of a sudden had access to the studio during some evenings and he and our my friend's dad generously donated the time to our weird band that had absolutely no commercial appeal. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about the band. What was what was the kind of influence and direction of that band? Okay, that band was called Acarso, which is an obscure reference to Dune. So that right away tells you <laughs> that we were not popular kids. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the references were things that were being released by Ch touch and go records in Chicago at the time, like Don Caballero, um, shellac, uh, and then 
sort of third wave discord records bands like Hoover or even Fugazi, obviously. And then um, things that were happening in San Diego at the time, like Antioch Arrow or um, Klikatat Ikatawi or um, The Locust. The, all of those kind of influences were happening. Um, but it was the first band I was in where the music reflected how I felt inside. Previous bands I'd been in that were writing songs were exciting to be writing songs to begin with. But, you know, when you're starting out, you don't necessarily find people that share a similar aesthetic to yours, but you're so excited to be making music that you just kind of make it work. But Acarso, which is the band I started when I was 17 with my best friend, um, was more representative of, of an aesthetic that I had. I'm interested in uh, that opportunity to have free studio time because my sort of first formative uh, music making experiences was with uh, a friend who was hugely into recording and uh, synths. And, and this is in sort of early to mid 80s. Um, so he he had just banks of synths and drum machines. And so we would spend every evening in his bedroom and his parents were very accommodating because we were very loud making kind of industrial pop music with me screaming <laughs> over the top of it but it was as awful as some of that music was, <laughs> as brilliant as some of it was. what it was was a chance to jump we had free run of our uh, imaginations and and uh how did you capitalize on that on that free studio time were you just experimenting or was there a real focus to it there was a lot of focus because we didn't have infinite free studio time. We had relatively brief windows in which to get the work done. And we were writing these very ambitious songs with dozens of parts and time signature changes and polyrhythms and things like that. And so we rehearsed quite a bit before we went into the studio and we were pretty prepared. Um, it's actually kind of impressive given how young we were at the time. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I still feel like that was an achievement um, and and uh, something that I, I'm proud of that version of myself. If when I look back at him, <laughs> I pat him on the head. <laughs> but, uh, but what it was, what the, the experience was super formative in the sense that this was the mid 90s. So the format was ADAT. And I think this particular studio had three or four decks, which meant 24 or 32 tracks. And he had an automated digital mixing console, which was an, a Yamaha O2R. Um, and he was an old school engineer who really knew what he was talking about. And he was patient and would explain things to me. I would want to know, you know, What's the difference between this microphone and that microphone? What does a compressor do? You know, what's the difference between um, parametric EQ and graphic EQ? And he explained all of this to me. And, you know, this was a resource that few people had at the time. Sure. There was no YouTube where you could look this kind of thing up. There were maybe a few home recording books which were useful, but this was like a gold mine. And my friend whose father owned the studio had no interest in recording technology. And um, I think that's not surprising. Often whatever your parents do is by default boring, but 
since it wasn't my dad, I was thrilled to be in there. And I still remember how it smelled in there. It, it's, it was this special smell of tobaccos, <laughs> smoke and, and like, um, high-end musical gear and the feeling of walking in and how, um, incredible, uh, the space was. Do you still have the recordings from those sessions, Joe? I mean, they were released. Um, so they're online and, uh, not on DSPs, but people, I mean, the band had a small following and I guess, you know, oh, I know this only because I was on another podcast and the host knew of the band. I was shocked, but, um, you know, we toured and we, we made CDs at the time and vinyl. And so some of those are still in circulation. Some of them have been digitized and put on YouTube. So it's, it's out there in the world, which I'm happy about. So it was, it was stuff that you pressed up for when you went out on the road to sell. Right. Did any of it, did you sort of post any of it out to labels to try and generate some interest that way? Well, both of both of the CDs that we made were technically released by labels, but you know, small indie labels. And then, um, yeah, we had a, a vinyl seven inch as well at the time that was, um, released by another small indie label. Um, so that must yeah, be hugely just, encouraging for you, you know, at such a, you know, a, a young age in a new band of, you know, one of your first bands and, 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 your music getting released. It was very exciting and it was exciting to release music at the time because there were more hurdles that you had to jump over. You couldn't just click a button and disseminate it across the world. So uh, the band I had been in previously had made a seven inch as well. And we'd gotten it into a few stores on consignment, which was exciting, but as somebody who grew up going to record stores, loving record stores, it was incredibly fulfilling to have something that was sold at a, at my favorite indie record store wow, <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it made it real. And what, what, when you went out on, on the road with the band, where, whereabouts were you touring? The first tour that we did was from our hometown, Milwaukee, down to Austin, Texas and back. And then, um, over the summer, we went to the East Coast and then to the West Coast. Um, and I think we did the East Coast a couple times the next year or two, or maybe at least once more. Um, so all over the States, we never left the States. Did you put, did you put those tours together in a sort of DIY fashion yourself? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and this was before you booked tours via email. So it was all over the phone. Nobody had a cell phone in the band. So you would buy calling cards, which you could use at pay phones to call in advance. And you'd have to get the directions over the phone and, and kind of use a real map. It was, it was an adventure. <laughs> and were you making connections with other bands and other musicians in order to hook those gigs up? Yes. You know, we would ask bands from our hometown where they would play in various cities or who they, whom they could connect us with. And then, as we did it more, we would meet people. And then as I was hosting shows at our house, we would meet bands and make connections that way as well. It's just such a, a, a vivid image in my mind of a, a house where you're hosting, <laughs> hosting shows. It was the most disgusting house you can imagine. <laughs> Three 18 year old boys, uh, you know, living on their own for the first time. Uh, 
<laughs> with dozens of people coming to the basement, packing in, smoking cigarettes, drinking beer, you know, three to four nights a week sometimes. Uh, and then everybody <laughs> would come up to the living room at, in between bands. Um, it was disgusting. <laughs> uh, and the house was disgusting to begin with. Uh, there were squirrels living in the walls. Squirrels in the walls. <laughs> we didn't have a garbage. We didn't have a garbage bin at first, so we would just throw the garbage on the floor. <laughs> it was just ridiculous. We would throw hammers at each other, and it would go into the walls. Um, and then somebody moved in years later and managed to make the house even more disgusting. And they were featured on the very first episode of a reality show called Hoarders. I don't know if you have that in the UK, but we have a similar thing. Yeah. It's a disgusting show. And yeah. a lady moved in and was hoarding food in the house. And oh it was a popular show here. I didn't realize it was my house at first, but then they went into the basement where she was hoarding all this food. And I saw the stickers from bands that had played there and I put it together in my mind and I, I was shocked that somebody had managed to make that place even more filthy than we had. Um, and we were burgled thrice in that house too. I, I think, you know, just the fact that it was an open kind of house and people would come in so often made us a target for burglary. What did they steal? They stole my roommate's guitars. They stole a computer. They stole a Nintendo. We had, I had my old Nintendo there. Um, they stole like by the end, they stole things that had very little value because there was nothing left to steal. Like yeah, for yeah. example, they stole our landline telephone and caller ID unit, which were probably valued at $5 each. <laughs> um, you you yeah. had some great bands coming through and, and playing shows there. Yeah. Yeah. I, Bands like Modest Mouse played in that basement. Um, and uh, the first show that we did, there was a band called The Boom, which was ex-members of Hoover and and The Sorts, which were both DC bands that I liked a lot. And um, I think The Faint played in that basement. Um, Anti Arab on Radar played there several times. If I mean, you brought up Lightning Bolt earlier. Um, Black Dice. Oh yeah. You know, bands like that. It sounds amazing that you managed to escape that house alive. Well, I was only there for a year. <laughs> what did, uh, what did that do in terms of your musical ambitions being, you know, having the sort of early experiences that you had, you had about getting music out there and then being around such a vibrant live scene. How did that uh, influence your musical ambitions? I mean, it was a vibrant line live scene but it was not commercially ambitious you know it was almost frowned upon to be commercially ambitious at all or you know in that scene at that time hmm. um but i think it was an outlet for my ambitions for my ambitions because i've been a relatively ambitious person and i, I just i wanted to be a part of something i wanted to get out there and see the world and use musical as the vehicle with which to travel the world and um, getting to do that at such a young age was empowering. Um, but then 10 years later when I'm touring with other bands and it's similar circuits to what I had done as a 17 year old, it, mm. it felt 
a bit stagnant um, because at that point I did have ambitions of making a living playing music and um, the sheen was gone and the adventurous aspect tends to um, thin out once when you're not experiencing new things or new places. And it was also probably an attitude problem that was my responsibility, but. Um, Did that lead you to walk away from that, that particular sort of line of music then? Well, yeah, I think I, I, I didn't think of it as walking away from it, but it was walking towards other types of music that I wanted to explore. So after that year, I decided to go to music school and um, I went to Berkeley in Boston. And my hope was that I would meet lots of musicians who were like-minded and I could start several more bands and explore new types of music. But I really didn't find anybody there that resonated with me on an aesthetic level. It just wasn't the right match for me in some ways, but it did allow me to really study and focus on music. Previous to that, I'd always thought that I would have a job as a computer programmer or something like that. And then music could be this pure passion that I would pursue um, on the side. This was when I kind of made the decision to pursue music, not only as a vocation, but as, you know, a source of income and going to school allowed me time to focus on becoming more versatile and just learning about all sorts of music that I had no awareness of prior to that. And I was a relatively precocious kid. So I, I did have, you know, a decent knowledge of lots of music, but I really expanded it when I went to music school, even though aesthetically it wasn't the right fit. It was a good place to hone some technical skills and um, gain some useful knowledge. So I went there for a couple of years and left after two years because I felt like I had gotten what I needed to and, and more, and I needed to kind of metabolize the information and decide which of it I was going to keep and which of it I was going to discard. How did you go about that process? Well, I moved to a farm in Northern Wisconsin and just played 15 hours, 16 hours a day. Um, and then from there I got asked to join a band in Washington, DC with one of my favorite guitarists. Um, and that band was short lived and did not work out very well. And then after that, I started getting into film and TV composing quite by accident. That, how did that come about? I moved back to my hometown, Milwaukee, um, and was just trying to decide what I wanted to do next. I, I was very depressed at the time that the band didn't work out. A friend of, a few friends of mine were co-directing a film and asked me and another friend to write some music for it. And that film was called The Yes Men. And it ended up getting released by United Artists and getting a theatrical distribution deal. And it was screened at Toronto and Sundance film festivals. And it was certainly not a commercial success, but it was a success in the sense that, again, I got to create something that got out into the world and was shown in cineplexes and on, on television. And it was really exciting. Yeah. And uh, at the time I was working as a waiter and the movie theater near the restaurant where I worked was screening the film. 
so I thought maybe that would be a path forward. Um, you know, my mindset at the time was still that I wanted to form another band and have that as my primary focus, but I was thinking, oh, well, if I'm writing film and television music, it could be, you know, a, a great day job, um, as I'm building this other career as a drummer. And I think what happened over the next 10 years is I was kind of doing both. I was playing in bands like parts and labor. Um, I played in several different kind of jazz groups and, um, Latin Senegalese. I was experimenting with learning about all these new kinds of music and, and learning how to fit into that. But then also going back to rock and roll, playing with people like Mary Timoney, Marnie Stern, parts and labor, um, and touring and, and then also composing and building that career up. And at some point, well, after parts and labor broke up, I decided to focus on composing that that would be my, my primary focus artistically for a while. And I moved out to LA at that time. And then shortly after moving to LA, Marnie called me and asked me to tour with her. So I did that because I loved her music and it was a lot of fun, but, but essentially that's been the focus up until I made my own solo record, um, which came out this year. Um, so now I'm just, I'm trying to think about with the next record that I make and once we can tour, you know, the goal is to be able to do that, my own work half the time and work with other people half the time. No, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing to hear. I was just interested that how you approached that first, that very first commission, it was kind of quite, a, quite a bold move. Did you, were you fearful about that at all? Was it, had you done anything like that? I was not fearful. I was so naive that I was not fearful. Um, and we were just making up our own way of doing it as I had in a DIY setting before then I did have some understanding of the film scoring conventions because I did take one film scoring elective when I was in college. So I had some sense of it and I was working with a partner who had gone to film school. So we did have some sense of what needed to be done, but we were not working in a conventional way at all. And, um, over the course of the next 10 years, we would learn more with each project and kind of develop our own system of doing things and become more efficient. Um, but always tried to leave the door open for experimentation. With the sort of the screen industry being the way, the way that it is in terms of, um, uh, decisions being made by committee, a lot of people are involved in the process. Uh, and you, you're from a, a DIY background where you're just getting on with it because the, the job needs doing, you've got an idea. How did you adapt to that? The input of others, uh, in your creative process? I think it played to my natural sensibilities in some ways. Um, first of all, when you're in it, even when you're in a DIY band, which is almost inevitably a democracy, there's a lot of argument, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm not, you're, you're, you're a committee making decisions, right? Where are you going to go on tour? Um, what, what should this part of the song be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not like it was totally foreign to me. And um, I think 
I wasn't as precious about the music I was making as a composer. And, you know, you're entering in with the idea that you you're helping somebody else facilitate his or her vision. And that is, um, both freeing and restrictive. Uh, it's freeing because you don't have to be the arbiter of whether something is working or whether something is great. And I think that that type of decision-making is what made it hard for me to make my own album for a long time mm -hmm. as a songwriter, having that responsibility. On the other hand, you're vulnerable to their critiques, as you mentioned, but um, I, I've always been so hard on myself so that early on when I worked with people that were neurotic or um, difficult to please, it played to my the way that I am inside anyway. You know, ultimately I've built a career where now I'm, I'm more excited to work with people who enjoy what I do, are hiring me for what I'm uniquely qualified to offer and will let me do that work with as little interference as possible. But that took almost 20 years to get to that place. Um, so, you know, I think I tried to approach it as a learning experience with each project. And when you're composing, the, I think kind of the biggest hurdle is the communication. So with each project, I hope that I got better at the communication process, uh, understanding how to read people, understanding what it is that they were hearing in their head, even if they couldn't articulate it, trying to exceed their aspirations for the music, all of those kind of things um, are kind of the central skills of being a film or television composer. That's a great answer. It is. Now, now you're at that point where you're established with the, you know, the film scores and that type of thing. How do you reflect back on the kind of importance of the your upbringing in the sort of DIY networks? I think it was incredibly important. Um, I think it it's probably the basis for which I've kind of created my own systems of doing things. I think, it, you know, people that I met during those times have become successful producers or musicians or um, record label owners or record executives. And so th that, that experience, which was done with no ambition of kind of professionalism at all, has been a very important experience professionally. And I've found that that's a recurring pattern. Like the things that I, the, the relationships that I forge when I'm not being a careerist, when I'm not um, trying to consciously network or consciously, you know, advance. Um, those are the powerful relationships. And so I don't try to, I, I try not to network. I try, you know, in the traditional way, I, I'm trying to just you know, it's, that was a community. I'm trying to find similar communities now to be a part of and not for, with the aim of working with the aim of being part of a community. And then the work is a byproduct of that. I mean, that, that, that sounds like such a refreshing approach. How difficult is it to achieve that within the, the sort of 
the uh, Hollywood system, if you like, being in being in LA. I mean, there's a democratizing of the process to some degree. Excuse me, uh, to some degree through the, the way that technology has changed, but the uh, um, the mainstream of the screen industry, I suppose, still kind of dictates a certain way of working. I think it was. I mean, I think it was really difficult for the first few years that I lived in Los Angeles because I was establishing myself, not as an artist, but as a person finding my community. But once I started finding like-minded individuals and having opportunities to work with them um, and having some credits on the real where, you know, it made it easier for, for people to hire me or they could, they were aware of things that I'd worked on then things became much better uh, and easier. But during the difficult years, that's when I started my podcast because I felt like I was working always on somebody else's schedule. And I was, you know, I had come from being a DIY musician, like we discussed, to then being, you know, at the beck and call of somebody else. And it just felt disempowering. So what the podcast allowed me to do is create something and of my own and a system of accountability and a release schedule so that I knew that every week I would put something out into the world that was mine and not exclusively mine because it was also a platform to tell primarily to tell the stories of other people, but getting to talk to all the people that I've spoken with was also incredible on an emotional level, um, useful on, a, on, you know, a logistical level, um, and just super informative. Um, and I, I think I started that podcast when I was in a very dark place creatively, I'd been touring. I wasn't feeling that kind of joy that I had felt when I started playing music. And I was wondering if that was normal, like, you know, how some marriages lose the passion after a while and then people just, you know, function for the rest of their life instead of thrive. And I didn't want to do that, but I was also at a loss for what else I would want to spend my life doing. So I wanted to figure out if other people had gone through phases like that. And if so, if they had any strategies to extricate themselves from that, or if the, you know, life intervened and if it was just a cyclical thing. And so th those were some of the answers that I was seeking when I started the podcast. And I don't know if I ever overtly got those answers, but just engaging with people, the process of asking the questions and the process of listening to other people and getting outside of my own mind um, was life-changing. Mm. One of the things that we found in, in our very short or brief journey so far is, is being about this importance of creative communities and connectivity. And it seems very much from listening to the trap set that that's, and from listening to you speak now, that that's also been a really at the very heart of the, the, the motivation for making your podcast. Yes. And, and that's at the heart of, you know, virtually everything I do and music is an inherently social art form. You know, usually you're playing with other people. And even if you're playing solo, it's the aim is to share it with people usually. Um, and I think I was able to tap into that same 
kind of communal energy by doing the podcast. And it really, it pulled me out of that dark place and brought me back to fertile ground creatively. Well, that's good. That's, I mean, that's really great to hear. Has uh, any of the, um, the conversations that you've had, cumulatively, the conversations that you've had influenced the way that you go about making music? Yeah, I mean, I think they all have. And I think they've influenced the way that I live my life and the way that I see the world. Um, I, I was thinking about some of the more influential moments and recently, uh, I spoke to Jim Keltner, who's a great session drummer and in his whole approach to drumming and his, I mean, he's a intensely great player, but he has a balanced life structure. He had a family life. He had a very non egotistical approach, a not a very humble approach where he wasn't seeking to be different, but he was different. That was really interesting. Um, over the last few years, conversations with people like Brian Blade, whom I think is, you know, perhaps the greatest drummer of his generation and just a musical genius, the amount of joy that he, um, the, the amount of joy that he takes in life Kind of dispelled this notion of the troubled genius you know which i think is a it, it can be true but l largely it's a myth because it's sexy to people to think about the dark troubled genius but he's a joyful genius or speaking to somebody like sheila e about how she always pursues the scariest moments and and artistically heads for the fear um and that's where the creatively exciting territory is that's what I was trying to do when I made this album you know it was something and David Bowie made an he, David Bowie was not on my show but he I, I remember seeing him talking about what about his kind of artistic ideals and and he was saying that you need to think of it like you're wading out into the ocean and you want to be at that place where your feet are just not touching the bottom anymore and I think that that made a lot of sense and that that's what I've been trying to do lately. When you were um, coming into the process of writing for your album um, with all of that kind of in the background, all of that experience and um, how did, how was that informing the process of, of, of making those demos and, 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 and writing? Um, I think that the act of making my own album was like wading out into the place where I, there was a little danger and I wasn't quite touch, able to touch the floor of the ocean anymore, just making the album to begin with. But what I did do is I took some of the skills, the logistical skills that I developed as a composer and applied those to making the album because what I learned about myself is that if I'm left to my own devices, I'm too hard on myself to ever complete anything. But if I have a deadline and if I have a system of accountability, then I can make the work and I can, I kind of go into the flow. And so I, I discovered I need to remove 
the opportunity for too much conscious thought in the whole process and set a deadline and bring in a producer to help. So I brought my old bandmate and my very good friend, Mary Timoney in to produce. She lives in Washington, DC. So it involved buying a plane ticket, which is like a financial acknowledgement of your intentions, flying her out here, booking a studio. I have my own studio, but I wanted to book a studio specifically for this project. So again, it felt more deliberate and um, it worked. <laughs> and when I was writing, I knew that I had these studio dates coming up, so I had to have material. And I kind of just employed the same writing methods that I do when I'm writing for film and TV, where I wasn't really judging it in the moment. And I would just write demos on my phone in the morning, the first thing, part of my day. And I would set a timer for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, or 30 minutes and just try to generate as much material as possible and then go back later and pick the ones that were resonant and develop those into songs. And so that was the process because if I were to sit down and say, now I shall write a song <laughs> and I will will it to be good, it would never work. I don't think anybody can will something to be good. I think you have to, you know, just go out there and pan for gold every day until you, catch until you see a nugget in your pan yeah. and then then you can use your will to polish it or to shape it um but the raw material itself comes from elsewhere joe how how hard how hard a decision was it to sing on your own record was that the first time that you'd sung on music that you'd made i'd sung a little bit of backing vocals with both mary timoney and parks and labor and i had sung on some animated shows for which I was composing. Um, and that was fun because again, I was literally singing for another character on screen, but it was really the first time I'd sung under, you know, as myself. And, and it was the first time I had made a statement of my own, really um, all my own. And it was extremely scary. I, I can remember the feeling in my body when we were doing the first vocal takes just Mary and I in the room feeling intensely in uncomfortable and, and she had to go being this, the seasoned professional that she is, she recognized that and went and bought a bottle of whiskey for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. And, but then once now I, now I'm really enjoying singing. Um, I think it's the vocals are one of me. the standout things on the oh, record. Thank you. Actually, I have to say that I think the the honesty of the lyrics um, is really impressive and really striking, and the 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 vocal performances. I'm not. It's one of the things that really jumped out to me as we're talking. Well, about. I I have a lower register, and so I think when I when I was thinking about making the record, it was really empowering to listen to other singers with lower registers. Um, you know, people like Scott Walker or even Tom Jones, um, you know, um, or Lou Rawls or Barry White even. And um, anyway, you know, as somebody who came of age during the 90s, you know, Tom York was kind of the gold standard in alternative music at the time. And his voice is so much higher than mine. So it just, it didn't feel like I could be a singer during that time. 
Although, you know, as in the eighties, when I was really young, I was a huge Depeche Mode fan. And so, um, so now I've revisited them. <laughs> I actually finally got to see them play a, a couple of years ago because my friend's band was opening for them. Um, and it was, that was great. Uh, the yeah, they're, they are a unique band, aren't they? Yeah. It would be great. I mean, I, I would love to hear you speak to Martin Gore. Yeah. Or Dave. Gahan. Sure. <laughs> I would speak to Dave too. Well, his story is, is, is kind of very much out there, isn't it? And he's been very, he's had some very uh, sort of public, uh, stories and things, but Mar Martin Gore has kind of been more in the, in the, in the background, but is the, cr one of the creative forces, isn't he within the band? Yeah, I should, I should, um, reach out. I, I don't have his phone number, but maybe I can find it. <laughs> <laughs> There's the challenge. It must've been, uh, it must've been so great to be able to lean on such a stellar cast of friends and musicians to bring into, to make the record with you, Joe. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I mean, most of it was made just me and Mary in the studio tracking the basics, but then I, I had always heard the strings and horns on it. You know, as I mentioned, I was, I'm a huge Scott Walker fan and I, I love the orchestration on his records. I, in fact, I even contacted his arranger at one point and I got a really nice email back from his arrangers partner and his arranger had died a couple of years before, but his arranger was a very interesting character. Uh, he was known as Wally Stott when he was working with Scott, but it actually, then he transitioned and became a female and moved to America and worked as an arranger for John Williams on film scores here in LA. Wow. What a story. Um, yeah, I know that would have been a great podcast. Um, but I had always been hearing the strings and horns and I luckily had plenty of experience working with strings and horns in scoring projects. And I, I knew, um, Paul Cartwright from some of those projects and he's an incredible genius arranger. And so we worked on the arrangements together and it was a thrill. I mean, the album transformed over the course of a three hour session. Once we had all the arrangements done and then we brought in the players, it, it really, it just it took the, the whole project to the finish line, really. Well, that's that feeling of the, the, the songs changing when the, uh, those, those string and horn arrangements were going on and you're sat in the studio listening to that and directing that happening. How closely did that mirror that initial feeling that you had when you first started playing music? Was it a similar thing? Pretty closely. I mean, it was, it was uh, definitely one of the great thrills of my career. And then strangely enough, one of my favorite childhood musicians just happened to be visiting the studio and came in when we were in the midst of recording Cat Stevens, who's technically now my, my DECA label mate, or I mean, his, his early stuff was released by Durham, which was a DECA imprint. But um, that was amazing. Uh, it was just a magical day. Huh. And, and getting to meet Kat Yusuf was the icing on the cake, but it was fantastic. And it was, it wasn't, you know, the thing that I've realized is I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna experience the same feeling that I had when I was 12 years old. It's, but it's similarly intense new feelings. Oh uh, yeah, it's, it's akin to it, isn't it? When you, uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. <laughs> And what was it like having Dave Friedman working on the record? I can only imagine that was an amazing experience. Well, 
it it was it was i had worked with dave once before on the final parts and labor album and this record was tracked in a pretty traditional way you know in that we used all live musicians and um the way that things were mic'd was more old-fashioned i was using uh, on the drums i only used four mics um you know kick snare and ribbon overheads and a glenn johns configuration and then with the strings we used mostly a decatree so only three mics and, and and on and on you know but then i wanted to add a very modern element as well and dave is the perfect person for that i mean i think he's the king of psychedelic modern psychedelic music you know with everything that he's done with with the flaming lips of course but also tame impala and you know you mentioned quasi and slater kenny have both worked with dave as well so I thought he would be great. And, um, you know, at the time that I contacted him, I had no label. I had no, I didn't even know if this album would ever really be released. His career has continued to grow in the 10 years since I'd worked with him. So I wasn't really sure if he would be interested. And at first he kind of turned me down because of time restrictions, but then he called me back and said, okay, I really love this. I really love these. So we have to figure out a way to make it work. And that was one of the early votes of confidence that meant mm. the world to me that he wanted to work on it and that he was willing to accommodate me. Um, even though he's one of the most in, in demand mm. producers in the country, uh, or really in the world. Um, because even artists from the UK, like Mogwai were flying over to work with him during, you know, that same time. So, it was great. And I, I think in the 10 years since I made the first record with him and making my own record, I'd grown a lot and I'd gotten to the point where I was willing to treat Dave with the same respect that I would hope that would be afforded to me as a composer, meaning that I truly believed in my heart that he would be a perfect person to mix this album. And I wanted him to have some creative agency over it and to feel like he could be empowered to really experiment and try whatever he wanted because I think he's a genius. And I think if I went in with a preconceived idea of what I wanted him to do, it would be a shame because it would discount um, the magic that he could bring to the process. So while he was mixing, I was usually in the other room composing for a show. And then I would just come in after he was done with his first pass and usually i wouldn't have too many notes and, okay. and even if it was i was shocked by how different it was from what i had imagined i told myself okay you had one thing in mind but that doesn't mean that that was the correct thing like you brought this person in and you're not paying for his technical skill you're paying for his aesthetic and for his ear and his sensibility so you need to honor that and I'm really glad that I gotten to the point where I was able to trust him. And of course, most of the time I would walk into the room and just be blown away by what he did. But, um, you know, it's jarring when there's that much of a change. And, and that's why I understand when I'm working with a newer director or producer, when, when you take out whatever music they had temped in and add the real underscore, 
sometimes their inclination is to want to try to push it back towards what they're comfortable with. And that's bad (laughs) (laughs) healthy for a number of reasons. And so I, I try to, I, I just kept that in mind when I was working with Dave and, and tried to be the kind of collaborator that I like working with. I think there's, there's so much for people to take away in terms of advice from what you've just said. It's, it's, it's really exciting. It makes me want to go into a recording studio and make music as well. Uh, just hearing, uh, about those processes. I mean, you, you spoke before Joe about, um, how music had been something that was and your creativity was something that had become, uh, uh, served a real sort of, uh, um, therapeutic, um, role in your life. And, you know, given the sort of the difficulties that we're all contending with at the present time, how much of a support is your creativity for you at the moment? It's very supportive. Um, when the pandemic started, I didn't feel inspired to write music. And I think the reason is that the raw material for any kind of creation, at least for me and for probably most people comes from human interaction, right? That's, that's the pre idea, you know, it's, you have an interaction with something and then an idea forms, and then maybe that idea turns into a song or a film or whatever. Um, and absent having that kind of connection with other human beings, uh, I felt a bit drained of energy. Like I didn't see a reason to get out of bed in the morning. So my response was to start creating daily podcasts. And now I was no longer bound to do these in person. And I started recording them over the phone and, you know, I was hearing from everybody that I spoke to that they were not inspired, but that was ironically kind of inspiring (laughs) to feel like we're all in it together, to feel like I wasn't alone in my, um, malaise. Mm. And again, it was just a nice way of connecting with people and putting something out into the world because it's, it's easier to have a conversation and then just hit send than it was for me to write songs in, in some ways. And, um, again, I think that those, some of those conversations kind of saved me and helped steer me back to the path. And now my composing career is very busy again. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at the threshold where it's almost too much work, you know, 80, 90 hours a week. That's about my limit. And it, the reason is that some projects that were scheduled before COVID broke out have come back and other projects that were delayed have come back. So I have more, more work now, um, than I have in a while. Um, but I, I feel so lucky to have these opportunities that, you know, uh, I'm, doing my best to stay engaged in all of that and, and, um, make the most of it. Yeah. I think you're spot on. I mean, so many of us, I think at this, uh, this current time are, you know, having conversations about the importance of connectivity pretty much every day. I think I go out there and at some point it comes in to a conversation with, with someone It is so integral, isn't it? That human contact is so vital. Right. And I think, again, it, it's making me conscious of how inherently social music is as an art form. It's not really 
again, with the advent of home recording, you have albums, you know, from dating back from the first Paul McCartney record or whatever, up through John, Daniel Johnston and Elliot Smith, et cetera, et cetera, that were made in solitude. But I think music is generally meant to bring people together. I mean, that's been its role throughout the vast scope of human history, um, whether it was religious ceremonies or even like war drums or whatever, it always has something it has to do with human interaction. Um, so when you take that out of it, 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 it's, it becomes like uh, an engine without wheels or something. We're, uh, we're getting close to the hour mark here. And, uh, but I do, I do want to uh, just move on to talking about the, the demo that people are going to hear at the end of the show shortly. And uh, if you could just, uh, talk a little bit about the journey of uh, the, the origin of the demo and that and that particular song and then uh, its journey to uh, the final version on the record. Night Creatures is one of the first songs that I wrote and when it, where it occurred to me that I could turn it into a song for a record. I had a ritual that I would engage in every morning when I was thinking about making a record, when I was just dipping my toes in, where before I would go to my studio at the time, before I would start my day, I would go sit in the corner of my bedroom with a bass um, and brainstorm a few song ideas into my voice memos on my phone without any real kind of judgment. Just a way of kind of creatively starting the day. And it's one of the first songs from that initial batch. Um, from there, I made a home demo with drums and and I and a bass line, um, a kind of busy bass line. I was thinking about how I love busy bass lines on relatively simple songs, whether it's James Jamerson or my old teacher Carol Kay. Or, um, you know, like a Scott Walker song, like The Old Man's Back Again, which has a really kick-ass, busy bass line. So that bass line became central to the, to the song um, when I made a, kind of a proper demo of it. And that was the first thing that I sent to Mary Timoney, who ultimately produced it. I think I had probably already bought her a plane ticket out here. But yeah, I, I sent it to her and I remember feeling so nervous that I had even sent it to her. I don't think there were lyrics yet. Um, but, but once I had the baseline kind of indicated to me what was happening with everything else, um, the reason I wasn't writing on a chordal instrument is that I didn't want to be weighed down by making uh chordal decisions when i was writing it i just wanted the most immediate instrument a melody and um a harmonic foundation um you know and it worked uh but then once i figured out the chords it was interesting because i never would have written those chords uh if i was sitting down at a piano it's all I believe that song is all major chords in this strange way. 
Um, so it's non-diatonic and it's just, it's, they were implied by the baseline and the melody. So I, I probably was feeling them, but I, I would, if I had to think about it, I wouldn't have written it that way. Um, so that was an interesting discovery. But once I had all that stuff in place, um, the next step was to take it to the studio and Joshua Tree and record everything properly. And then from there, I kind of already had the trumpet solo in my mind, I knew what the melody was going to be. I knew some of the kind of top line string melodies, but then I brought it to Paul and he really took it further than I could have. And sometimes, but I mean, the, the, the band that Ben and I play in, um, the demos always sound so very, very different to the finished thing because of the sort of the way the instrumentation is worked out, you know, with Paul, the singer kind of just, in his own idiosyncratic beatboxing style, we'll put down some, you know, the drum parts and and also sing all of the other parts as well. And then, and quite and quite often those people are very fond of those recordings, aren't they? And and then they move so so far away <laughs> from the, from uh, from those. But um, yeah, there was often... definitely one of the songs on the album where I recorded the drums at home, thinking that I'd replace them in a nicer studio, but it just never felt correct and so uh, i've been doing this for long enough when i that i know that you know there's no right or wrong way and if it feels mm. right just keep it um yes I, I traveled down to london for a, to record the drums the last drums for the on the our last album it was, a, it was the last session and we did i don't know i mean it, it there's always a lot of uh like, just try this, just try that, just try this. Just... <laughs> and then they just kept the drum loop. And, you know, I could have saved myself mm -hmm. three hours, six hours on the train. I did put a tambourine down, though. You did. It was my little, my little victory. <laughs> well, sometimes a tambourine can make all the difference in the world. In... That's the thing. Sometimes so, something that small can make all the difference. If, if it helps. If it helps. <laughs> if it helps. <laughs> well think about um you know think about how little garlic comparatively goes into a marinara sauce and how much of a difference it makes um it, and if you didn't put it in it would just taste like ketchup or something you know so that's that's something i always keep in mind when i'm composing um because sometimes people don't have the musical language to articulate what they like or don't like about something and i've been in mix sessions with people who are running television shows and there's something that they really don't like and it's been a matter of pulling out the tambourine or turning off a delay on something which to me as a musician who's immersed in that world those things are things that i don't think about as much but it's almost like a food allergy right and if you're a chef you're of course you're going to put onions in most things uh, you know on, root vegetables are the basis of lots of the best dishes, but some people are allergic to onions and, you know, you, so you have to be kind of conscious. It's almost like they do at restaurants sometimes now ask, do we have any food allergies at the table? I, I feel like I'm doing my own version of that as a composer or trying to figure it out. It's been a, a, a real joy to talk to you. And, uh, could you just, uh, into, uh, introduce the song? This song is called night creatures. Thank you, Joe. Fantastic. Thanks, Joe. Okay. <clears throat> Night 
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. <laughs>